0: so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul's career or calling as an apostle spanned about 20 years from his conversion on that Damascus road in Acts 9, all the way to his execution in rome around the year 64 a.d during that period of time by the grace of god paul was able to plant numerous churches and he preached throughout the mediterranean world and in terms of word count he wrote about a quarter of the new testament 13 of the 27 books but unlike so many fallen christian celebrity preachers today Paul fought the good fight, and he finished his race without leaving behind a hint of impropriety that might stain or tarnish the witness of the gospel and the glory of Christ, his Lord. So, if you were to summarize the content of his life and ministry, it would be impossible to avoid noting his singular laser focus on Jesus. For 20 years, he never wavered, he never capitulated. Jesus is the sounding note of his entire apostolic ministry. In his first letter, he writes, Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. And in his final letter before his death, he writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal. Yes, Jesus is a theme for 20 years of Paul's life. Now, the inevitable question that you you might ask is, why? Why was Paul so unwavering? Why was he so dogmatic? Why didn't he let off the gas? Well, the answer is as simple as it is profound because Paul believed the gospel alone proclaimed hope for a world filled with the broken and weary sinners but he didn't just talk about it no Paul actually experienced it the grace of God God's loving kindness in Christ Jesus it had completely transformed Paul's life in fact it turned it upside down he was a sinner saved by grace And it was that grace of the Holy Spirit that continued to animate his whole life. It was the grace given to him that allowed him to live his life as a Christian. It's no small wonder, then, that he writes what he does in Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone There's no hidden small print, no caveats, no provisos. Everyone includes people like you and me, rich, poor, old, young, male and female, religious or irreligious, rock-bottom people and everybody in between, sinners. Everyone needs to hear the gospel of Jesus, the savior of sinners. Well... As Paul neared the end of his life, and especially in his pastoral epistles, we get a glimpse into his heart's concern for the future of the church that he would leave behind. Now He knows, he knows that the church is in God's hand, but he still wants to offer counsel and wisdom to the next generation of church leadership. And that's what we see in, this, in his pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus we know that Timothy was left to be pastor of the church in Ephesus. But Titus, he had been left to pastor a fledgling church plant on the island of Crete, to pastor this church plant, to organize it, to appoint elders and deacons. Unlike the Ephesian church, we don't really know very much about the Cretan church. But we do, however, know from history that Crete was a place with infamous people. Today, we use the word Google, not only as a noun, but also as a verb. If you want to know something, you Google it. That's an action. Similarly, the word Cretan, in the first century, it functioned as a noun, a person, place, or thing, and a verb, an action. To act like a Cretan was to be a deceitful liar. This notorious Cretan reputation, it's traceable actually to about 600 years before Jesus in the words of a Cretan philosopher named Epimenides. Why does that matter? Well, take a look at Titus 1 verse 12. For there, Paul references Epimenides. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And so what we find here in his second last letter before his death is that Paul writes to Titus, a pastor of this young fledging church plant among a notorious population of everyone's. And when you read through the entire letter, it's clear that the Cretan believers in their unregenerate condition had been hateful, quarrelsome liars. They were lazy, evil, addicted to alcohol, thieves, undignified, disrespectful of authority, irreverent, slanderers, foolish, disobedient. They were enslaved to sinful passions. And there is more in the letter. A rather motley crew of people, maybe a little bit like those of us who are gathered here, Nevertheless, in Crete, as D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo both remark, it would seem that neither Paul nor Titus had a moment' of hesitation about establishing a church in Crete. The letter is clear evidence that the Christian Church is not intended to function in only a cozy, respectable, middle-class environment. No, the gospel is for the most unpromising of people. Yes this gospel is for the most unpromising of people. And that could not be clearer than in Titus 3, verses 4 through 8. These verses, more specifically verses 4 through 7, form the fifth and the final of Paul's faithful sayings. Like the other sayings in the pastoral epistles, there's debate about the exact origin of this well-known saying that Paul references. But it's because of its very evident Trinitarian structure its heavy gospel focus, and the mention of washing that many scholars think it's entirely possible that this was used as a creedal confession during baptismal ceremonies. At any rate, in verse 8, Paul employs the now formulaic sounding, the saying is trustworthy. But unlike First Timothy 1 verse 15 and First Timothy 4 verse 9, he doesn't add the phrase, and worthy of all acceptance. Instead, he adds a, a lengthier version with a similar idea. He writes, And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to do good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Well, like Paul's instruction to Timothy, here too, Paul wanted Titus's ministry in the Cretan church to have that same singular gospel jesus focus that his apostolic ministry had he wanted titus to always remember that right living good works as he calls it through the letter that right christian living it's only possible through a right understanding and a genuine experience of god's grace and so paul wants titus to insist to stress these things in his Cretan ministry more than anything else, because these things were excellent and profitable for all people, for the every ones in the world who believe in Jesus Christ. Of course, if that's true, and it is, then it really includes you and me today, wouldn't it? The gospel things we should be stressing, highlighting, and celebrating And expecting to be proclaimed each Sunday are the things included in this faithful saying. These are the things that we need to be stressing and insisting on in our own personal lives. It doesn't matter what we're going through, what our trials are, what our circumstances are. It's a non negotiable. The saying is trustworthy, it's profitable, it's excellent for all people in all circumstances. The gospel must be at the forefront because we're not just Sunday Christians. We need to stress these things in our families as we raise our children, to know Jesus in our friendships as we point each other to Christ. Philippians 2 verse 4 puts it like this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about such things well this trustworthy and excellent saying begins in titus 3 verse 4 but it's important to note the, sorry it's important to note not what it begins with but whom because it's god the father right when goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared Now, grammatically, the word but, yes, it is a conjunction that links two ideas together in a contrasting structure. So the words but when, they imply a reference to a previous time, a different time. We don't need to look very far to to find that reference because it's in verse 3. There Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I don't know if you caught it. It's that little pronoun that Paul uses. We. The great apostle is at the tail end of his ministry, and yes, he'd fought the good fight. He was almost finished the race, yet Paul still includes himself among these Cretans in verse 3 for we ourselves were once. What an incredibly humble acknowledgement of his past and sinful condition. And Paul, he doesn't just stand next to the gospel story watching it from outside. No, he places himself right into the middle of the story of redemption as someone who has experienced it firsthand. I wonder how quickly we would do the same thing is the gospel just something that you talk about? I know sometimes when we get together with other believers, we, we think we're talking about spiritual things because we're talking about church or decisions the leadership has made. And those are not irrelevant conversations, but that's not really placing yourself into the gospel story. And you may think you are, but it's not the same thing. Or when you talk to your children, are you just telling them stuff about the gospel? Or are you actually living it out, putting yourself in the story alongside them? Yes, Paul says, when we ourselves were once this way, he's living the gospel in his own experience. Looking again at verse 4, everything changed for Paul and the Cretan believers, when God's righteousness and loving kindness appeared. You might call it an epiphany. The theologian William Hendrickson writes, Upon the stygian darkness of our own past dawns dramatically the light of the Father's kindliness and the pity which brought us to our present state of grace. Without a doubt, the primary reference of verse 4 is the birth of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of the Son of God. Just think of how Isaiah nine verses two through six, or Zechariah's song in Luke one seventy eight and seventy nine, or John chapter one verse nine, all characterize the birth of Jesus. They say that his birth is as the appearing of light into the darkness. Or closer up to our text, Titus two verse eleven says, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation." for all people. But the appearing of the light wasn't just a random event in history. It's nothing less than the result of God the Father's outpouring of his goodness, of his loving kindness towards sinners. Think of 1 John 4 verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest or revealed among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. At the same time, the when of verse 4 also has a personal experience, doesn't it? It's the subjective experience of coming to faith in Jesus when God's goodness and loving kindness first appeared in each of our own lives, when we understood the gospel truly for the first time. Just think of how Ephesians 2 Verses 1-4, through speaking to Timothy and Ephesian believers, Paul formulates it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, there's a two-word summary of the gospel, but God. That's a game changer. You're dead, but God. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, but when? Well, the same Ephesian note of amazing grace and loving kindness is what continues to sound in Titus 3, verse 5. Now, interestingly, at this point, the ESV breaks from its reputation of being a literal translation of Greek syntax. It breaks from using Greeklish. In a way, it's understandable because a literal translation of verse 5 makes well it makes for awkward English. Nevertheless, it is clear from the Greek that Paul deliberately places the verb of saving at the very end of a string of 14 Greek words. And he does this for theological emphasis. To borrow from verse 8, he does it to insist, to stress these things. Literally verse Four to five, they goes like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his great mercy, he saved us. And the point couldn't be clearer. We need to insist on these things. Salvation, it is not predicated on our own personal merit. It can't be earned. And that's true of us today. We couldn't earn salvation because we, like the Ephesians, were dead in our sins. We, like the Cretans, were enslaved to our own sinful passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. There was nothing righteous about us. There was nothing that made God look at us and say, wow, these people are special. I like them way more Than the mass of sinners down the road. We didn't even have a desire in our hearts to do good works. We were hateful and nasty people. Well, here Paul's gospel stated, insisted upon positively. It's another way to look at it salvation from sin finds its origin and plan in the heart and the character of God the Father. Salvation is predicated exclusively on God's goodness and loving-kindness. Literally in the Greek, the word translated as loving-kindness is philanthropy, God's kindness towards humanity. Well, salvation is found in his grace alone, as Ephesians verse 2 says so eloquently, and as Titus 3 verse 5a adds, it is based on his mercy. What is mercy? Well, there's a very well-known musician that tried to show the excellence of mercy and grace. Maybe you've even heard of him. Paul David Hewson? No, probably not. Maybe you know him better as Bono from U2. In an interview, he spoke about the difference between the widely accepted idea of karma and the truth of God's grace. So here's what he said. You see... At the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of most human action. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that. As you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge, but I'm holding out for grace because I believe that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because well, because I know who I am and I don't want to depend on my own righteousness. I love the idea of a sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, there are certain results to the way you are, to selfishness. There is a mortality as part of your very sinful nature, and let's face it. You're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to your actions. But the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that we so that what we put out doesn't actually come back to us. That our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death we deserve. And that's the point of the gospel And it should keep us humbled. End quote. Well, the sovereign grace of God continues to take center stage as this faithful saying covers the span of our whole Christian life, now highlighting that regenerating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's clear that the gospel, more accurately, God, leaves nothing to chance. He doesn't save you and say, All right. Now go live a Christian life on your own strength. No. Salvation and the Christian life from start to finish, properly understood, it is all the work of God. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And we can take comfort knowing that we are never alone. And now if you look at verse 5b, that it says he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Well, it's not so different from 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Regeneration is another way of saying being born again. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To be born again is to be given a new heart by the power of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, describes this so beautifully when God says to Israel, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart, a stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for your God. To be born again Or from above is to be made alive with christ to be washed and cleansed from the guilt of all of your sin just think of that conversion that jesus sorry that conversation that jesus had with the religious leader named nicodemus nicodemus wanted to know how he could gain eternal life and jesus said to him in john 3 verse 5 truly truly i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be renewed by the Spirit is that progressive transformation, that process of sanctification where the Spirit shapes us and chips away at our edges and makes us look even more like Jesus. It's when believers put that sinful nature to death and walk in newness of life with Jesus. You might call it resurrection living. Both of these things are pictured so beautifully in the sacrament of baptism. Romans 6 verse 4 makes this connection explicit. For there Paul writes, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Apostle Paul is highlighting there that it is only through daily dependence on the power of the Spirit that we can be renewed day by day. Of course, the Spirit who washes and renews is sent by the Father and by Christ. And Jesus spoke about this in his farewell address to the disciples in John 16, verse 7. We find that same truth expressed in Titus 3, verse 6, that God the Father, who saved us by his mercy, does this through the washing and the renewal of his spirit, who has been poured out, maybe a reference to Pentecost, on us so richly through Jesus our Savior. Isn't this a wonderful adverb in this faithful saying, the word richly? Are we insisting on the richness of God's mercy and glory as we encourage one another? God's grace isn't miserly. He doesn't save us with an outstretched arm and then only show us his closed fist afterwards. Maybe sometimes we too often view God like this, maybe like a Scrooge. But his grace and mercy are poured out on us so lavishly in our lives. His spirit is poured out so richly. His loving kindness is infinite. His promises to give us everything we need, sorry, he promises to give us everything we need To live for him and for his glory but the faithful saying of titus isn't finished on top of all of these rich gospel treasures the faithful saying closes with a magnificent cherry on top why is god so generous why is he so philanthropic to fallen undeserving humanity why didn't he just walk away what was God's purpose behind all of this overflowing grace and the abounding mercy and his loving kindness? Well, it's something utterly incredible. For not only was it so that God could justify, and that's a legal term, not only was it so that God the judge in his courtroom could declare sinners righteous on the basis of what Christ has done, that's wonderful enough, but even better, God takes us from the divine courtroom And he leads us by the hand, and he brings us into his house and sits us down in the living room, and he adopts us as his children. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. That's the purpose of his loving kindness. For God isn't distant. He's not this erratic, unpredictable God. No, he is near, and he is love, and he is your father. He adopts us to be children and heirs with Jesus Christ, heirs of eternal life. We are filled with hope as we walk through this life. And what a gospel, what a change in our identity, what loving kindness. For this is what you were like before, but when this happened, look at what you are now. You are a child of God, and it was all done for you on your behalf and you are called to embrace it you don't earn it and it's not merely just an intellectual idea because this this must be a lived out reality of believers who have experienced and continue to experience daily that great loving kindness of god through jesus christ the indicative of the gospel the facts of what god has done in jesus christ forms the basis for the imperative of Christian living, a life of good works, a life of walking in holiness with thankfulness to God. So don't mix this up, because if you do, you'll just end up living a life of moralism, where you think you're getting better little bit by a little bit, or you'll live a life of legalism, where you think you can bargain with God by ticking off all the boxes, or maybe you'll live a life of antinomianism Where you misunderstand grace so that you don't need to live in holiness. No, a right understanding, a genuine experience of grace, will lead to a grateful life that brings glory to God. So let's read the saying one more time, and then we'll close with prayer. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves good works these are these things are excellent and profitable for people let us